Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are watching me from around the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's teaching. I am Krista Bontrager, and I am a theologian and public apologist. And this is the channel where I offer teaching about the Bible and theological commentary on social issues. Now, over the Christmas break, there was a big announcement coming out of the Vatican. All of the news people were uh, were abuzz, and I was on vacation. But there was a release of a declaration entitled Fiducia Supplicanus. I probably said that wrong. I'm not good with Latin. But this declaration discusses the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations and same-sex couples. Now, this was widely reported in the mainstream media as the Vatican taking steps toward endorsing same-sex marriage. And this this document is very long. I, I read through most of it, um, and it did state very clearly that it was read by the Pope and, and had his I guess, stamped of approval, but it was not ex cathedra. It was not put out there as being infallible, which is brings us to kind of some of the difficulty of understanding the finer points of Roman Catholic polity. It is not always easy to discern what's happening. And the mainstream media doesn't always do a good job with reporting that. So I've asked my friend, Anthony Costello, to come back on the podcast and try to walk us through a lot of this confusion, help us to sort it out. Now, you may remember Anthony. He was on the show back in 2019, so we haven't heard from him for a while, but he also helped us do a show about Pope Francis and some of the statements that he made back then about gay marriage. And Anthony does a great job of just helping us understand more about Roman Catholic polity and how this all works and some of the finer points of those things. So I thought it would be great to have him back on for an update. So welcome, Anthony. Hi, Krista. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Now, let's try to, I always like to begin by kind of helping people get to know my guests a little bit more. Maybe a good place to start would be having you clarify your personal point of view. You're you're not a Roman Catholic, but you love and care about the, the Catholics in your life, and um, you have a certain interest in these kinds of ecumenical conversations. So let's let's start with that. I grew up Roman Catholic in Southside Chicago, Catholic grade school, high school, University of Notre Dame, a very well-known uh, Roman Catholic university. I even uh, had a stint in uh, Germany uh, where I studied at one of the few uh, Catholic universities in Germany where the bishop is still the president of the university. That was the Catholic University of Eichstätt, Eichstätt, Germany. Um, But I I had a born-again experience uh, at the age of 34 while I was in the Army. 
and I was invited uh, to the first evangelical church I ever stepped foot in. And I heard the gospel there preached as if for the first time. And, and I had a religious experience of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, ever since that day, and of course, shortly after that, almost immediately after I started reading the scriptures uh, for myself, and uh, ever since that day, I've sort of uh, called myself an evangelical Christian. Uh, to the point of where I eventually came out here to Southern California, did a few degrees at uh, Biola University Catholic School of Theology. Then after my conversion and after studying theology and, and uh, church history at uh, places like Talbot, um, you know, I, I just would say that I land firmly in the, sort of an ecumenical, a kind of an ecumenical heart. I mean, I, I do believe in an invisible church, the true church of all believers, and I think we find true believers uh, true followers of Jesus Christ in all of the great traditions. Uh, but at the same time, I would not hold that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true visible church on earth, um, and that to be outside of the Roman Catholic Church is to be outside of Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, so when we use the term ecumenism, there's a version of ecumenism that kind of says all religions are the same, and then there's another version of it that we're ta kind of talking about is what are those core beliefs that historic Christians can agree on? And we might find those people in Protestant streams, Roman Catholic streams, or even Eastern Orthodoxy, but that it, we're, we're kind of undergoing a similar process, I think, of what we saw a hundred years ago in the mo fundamentalist modernist controversy, where there was a sifting that happened across denominational lines of there are these fundamentals, these key core doctrines that whether you're a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Baptist, that we can agree on. And that's kind of the the version of ecumenism that we're talking about as yeah. there is this this widening divide between progressive streams in all of these denominations as well yeah i mean that that's a, those are important clarifications to make i wouldn't want our audience to think what i'm that i'm talking about what Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, former uh, Pope Benedict XVI, I think Pope John Paul used the phrase as well, a, a false irenicism, right? Where all religions are the same, propositional uh, claims uh, or theological claims don't matter. Um, the truth value of theological claims is irrelevant. That's not what I'm talking. It's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about a kind of ecumenicism where we recognize, uh, and 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 this is uh, in Vatican II as well. This is uh, Vatican II talks about separated brethren, where we recognize um, the validity um, uh, of you know our brothers and sisters in Christ in Eastern Orthodox Church churches in the Roman Catholic Church. And that, uh, and one of the uh, things that we recognize is valid, uh, at least amongst conservative uh, Christians, is that we take these theological uh, and propositional claims seriously. 
and that is maybe the 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 major divide between conservative Christians and progressive Christians is on whether or not theological claims and how we evaluate those claims really matters or not. Um, and it, it's interesting because even though conservatives will argue over the truth values of propositional claims, theological claims, we feel more bound together because we actually think that they they are uh, truth-bearing, that they actually matter. They do matter, and we have to continue to engage in those arguments. One of the things I try to do on this channel, and I try very hard, I'm not perfect, but I do try to have things as fair and accurate as possible to represent other positions and the people that hold them. Um, and I do spend a fair amount of time and effort really working at trying to be as fair and accurate as possible. And that's why I ask experts to come on, people like Anthony, to to help me when I'm like, look, I know I'm out of my lane here. I'm out of my league. I don't understand the finer points of Catholic polity. I really want to try my best to to be fair, but it's complicated. And so let's try to talk about this document and and what came out because the big question you know that everybody's asking at the mainstream media is pushing the narrative that this is a document that is intended to push the Roman Catholic Church further into the acceptance of same-sex relationships identity but ultimately same-sex marriage so let's let's talk about it what what do you see big picture of what is happening in this document. If you read the document without any subtext or context, you might say, hey, you know, it's this is this is not a bad document. The document is clearly um written to ensure that there's no change in the doctrinal um of views of the Roman Catholic Church on what marriage is, that marriage is distinctively between one man and one woman, uh, and that it cannot be between uh, two people of the same sex or or other kinds of irregular unions. I think where um, Catholics are concerned, uh, conservative Catholics especially, is that there's a larger context here. There's a there's a ten year history of Pope Francis's papacy. And there does seem to be something like a change in direction and a general push towards greater acceptance of uh, same-sex um, uh, same-sex couples or same the same-sex lifestyle. And the way that I think this is kind of being done is, and this is something this is I think the the, the number one concern that I would point out with regards to Francis's papacy, a document like Fiducius Supplicans, and something we're also seeing in other traditions, especially like the Anglican Church right now, the Church of England, and in Protestant churches, is um, a, a, a heavy emphasis on pastoral care, almost to the exclusion of theological clarity. Okay, so the sense is that want to emphasize how we um, apply uh, our our uh, the past the role of the pastor, 
into the life of the of the person that they're dealing with, right? And, and we're going to work in this space of pastoral care and counseling, but almost to the point of where you de-emphasize or segregate it off from uh, the theological beliefs we have or the theological teachings we have about things like marriage or um, uh, about sexual human sexuality, as if the theological beliefs don't really kind of apply to how you take care of the people in in your congregation or in your churches. And I think that's that's an overarching problem, both in Francis's papacy, but also what we're seeing in 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 church in places like the Church of England as well. Um, and this idea of blessings then really comes into play here because a blessing is something very much relational. I mean, somebody's coming up to you and asking you for a blessing. You're a pastor, you're a priest. How are you going to engage with that person who's asking for your fatherly or priestly blessing? Yeah, and I think that that wording is really important. In, in Right in the introduction, it talks about Pope Francis's fatherly and pastoral approach, that that is supposedly kind of the heart behind this document is if I'm a priest and somebody comes to me, how do I engage in pastoral counsel? How do I talk to them? And in particular, if this person is asking me for a blessing, what do I do? And that pastoral approach has been also the doorway or the language that has been used in other traditions such as Anglicanism, um, Church of England, that, that you're bringing up. And I think that you make a very important point that I want to make sure doesn't pass by people too quickly, is that there does seem to be this bifurcation as if the theology isn't part of the pastoral approach. Exactly. And so, well, we can technically believe that, you know, same-sex unions are immoral or engaging in homosexual behavior is immoral and against the historic um, faith. When it comes to the pastoral approach, when somebody comes to me, I talk to them, want to offer comfort and blessing, I almost engage in a completely different conversation with that person. And it's almost like there's there's two paths in the forest and which one am I going to go down? Yeah, I want to I want to front load this as potentially the most important point of the whole conversation we'll have today, because this is an ongoing thing in Francis's legacy where he will make statements. And I, I, I have a very good friend who's a excellent Roman Catholic theologian and also an expert in Reformed theology. His name's Ed Echeverria, and we talk about this often. Francis makes statements over and over again, divorcing theological, he'll, he'll, he'll talk about theological rigid, rigidity or absolutism when it comes to sort of propositional theological claims and how we can't get too stuck in rigid modes of thinking. And you know, this is all the language of progressive Christianity, which, you know, always has this impulse to detach itself from what came before, not to conserve, 
right? But but to sort of downplay and ultimately reject the historical teachings of the church or anything really, even philosophy, and you know, and, and sort of create novel teachings and have novel teachings. And in, in the Roman Catholic Church, this can get very tricky. Going back to how Roman Catholic ecclesiology uh, plays out, because there's always this idea of doctrinal development uh, where you can have a particular historical doctrine, but it can develop and unravel with uh, deeper and deeper meaning over time. But what you always need to be careful there is there can be development of a particular truth where you do recognize deeper and deeper meanings of that truth. But then there also can just be change where you've you've changed either the meaning has changed or your evaluation of the truth of what was met has changed. And that's where it's going to get it gets very tricky. And one thing I think has been a hallmark of Francis so far in his papacy, and we see this in other places in the Protestant world, like if, if uh, you're familiar with what uh, Andy Stanley, for example, uh, had this conference last year, uh, you know, unconditional, and he kind of does something like this as well, where he says, the idea is like, look, we're not changing the teaching on marriage. The Bible's clear on this. We're not changing any teaching. But... We're going to start doing, putting things into practice under the term pastoral care or pastoral theology that for all intent and purpose look like we don't really care about what the teaching says. Okay, the teaching, the theological, is not really informing what we're doing. We leave that teaching sort of in the books. We lock it away. It's downstairs in the basement collecting dust. And we just start doing things that look to the world very different, very much what like the culture would want us to do. But then we can always fall back of challenge and say, oh, well, we haven't changed the teaching though. Right. Right. And I think that that's where this gets very this potentially deceptive, potentially manipulative. It depends on what we say, like, is Francis and others, are they just confused? Are they just trying to work in this liminal space? between theological clarity and pastoral care and counseling, or are they deep down really trying to move the church away from yeah. uh, um, the, the traditional teaching? And the way to do this is just start practicing stuff yeah. that the world will see and then can think, oh, well, if everybody's doing it, then that's what they must believe. And then a generation or two later, he was like, well, we've been doing this for two generations. Why do we need this old teaching any, any right. longer on, on what marriage is? So I, I think that's the fundamental concern. And let me quote, uh, well, I think this is encapsulated. Let me quote right from Fiducia Supplicans, paragraph 25. If you don't mind, let me just read this. So I think this encapsulates that whole idea. Quote, the church, moreover, must shy away from resting its pastoral praxis on the fixed nature of certain doctrinal or disciplinary schemes, especially when they lead to, quote, a narcissistic and authoritarian elitism, whereby instead of evangelizing, one analyzes and classifies others, and instead of opening the door to grace, one exhausts his or her energies in inspecting and verifying. Thus, when people ask for a blessing, an exhaustive moral analysis 
should not be placed as a precondition for conferring it, or those seeking a blessing should not be required to have trial moral perfection, end quote. Now, the last piece of that is correct. You don't want to, if somebody comes up, Father, bless me. You know, I'm a sinner and and I need strength. I need help. And if it's just an individual person, you probably don't even ask them any questions. You say, of course, I'll bless you, my son or my daughter, right? But that first part of that, where it says, our pastoral practice has to shy away from resting on the fixed nature of certain doctrinal or disciplinary schemes. What does that mean? What does that really mean? That should raise a, a yellow flag at least. Why should our pastoral practices actually not refer back to a fixed nature of doctrine? In fact, they should refer back to a fixed nature of doctrine. That doesn't exclude the second half of that, that yes, we don't have to exhaustively know about all the sins of somebody before we can make up our mind about whether to giving them a, a simple blessing or not. Maybe it would help me and maybe some of our other Protestant viewers who are watching this to just understand a little bit more about the act of asking for a blessing. That's something that, you know, we don't really do so much in most of our Protestant streams. And so we're not even really sure what what we're talking about. In the document, it tries to separate out two different types of blessings, one which it calls liturgical or ritual blessings, and the other spontaneous or simple blessings. And in, in so doing, what it's trying to say is, look, we, you, uh, you cannot have a liturgical or ritual blessing that in any way would appear to be blessing the union of a same-sex couple or, or people in other irregular situations. Okay, but the idea. What it would in a regular situation would that be like a couple living together, couple but not married? Together, uh, a a divorced couple, somebody okay. who's divorced, but maybe has a is in a second marriage, but the first one had not has not been annulled by the Catholic Church. Okay, I mean it could be. Look, it could be. Uh, conservatives have been conservative Catholics have been raised, but it could be it could be a, a, a an incestuous relationship. It could be a polygamous relationship, right? Somebody comes up to the priest and he's got his two wives standing behind him, right? So it's open as to what the irregular situation is. It's just irregular with regards to one man, one, one, one. Okay. All right. Error. So the idea is like, it, there is a distancing from same sex, any kind of same sex marriage and saying, look, there's not going to be a li- any liturgical or ritualistic blessings of this, because let's say those are more formal blessings of the church. But, you know, if the sinner sort of just spontaneously comes to the priest and says, Father, bless me, you know, I'm struggling, uh, you know, I, or, I mean, this is where it's going to get very tricky in, in, in the actual immediate context of a person or a couple coming to a priest and asking for a blessing. And one Catholic commentator just said, like, every time this happens, there's going to have to be like a couple paragraph length explanation of why the pastor actually did this. What was the pastor actually blessing? Was he blessing the couple? Was he blessed in the union? Or was it like one person in the couple in a same sex marriage was asking for help 
with some other issue in their life, their work, or uh, they have a health issue. They they just you know they have they just got cancer. Father, bless me. I have cancer. Help me through this. You know, give me a blessing so I can survive through this struggle with cancer. Well, we wouldn't deny somebody that even if they're married to a person of the same sex per se. You know, even in in the Bible, a blessing. I was just reading about uh, Isaac's blessing of Jacob, where he makes the mis- mistakenly blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And in the commentary, read this is like a blessing. There's a reason why Isaac can't take the blessing back and then just give it to Esau, but even though Jacob fooled him. It's because the blessing is is sort of like it's like in the Old Testament, it's like a release of an actual power. Right, this is now blessed. I can't undo this blessing. And in the Roman Catholic tradi- Church, I think we got to take that seriously. So a blessing is something serious. You're blessing. You're you are asking for God's uh, intercession in this person's circumstance. Okay, so that's it's going to get very tricky, and you got to be very careful about what you're actually blessing. And this is why conservative bishops and and priests, just the average priest running a, a parish wants clarity on this. Yeah. Because they don't want to be blessing something that is sinful, right? They don't want to be put into these awkward positions of potentially blessing something sinful. And as we've seen, other Catholics who are more progressive and who are pushing for this, well, you know, there's this idea that a lot of same-sex couples, same-sex married couples, they are already using this as sort of a springboard. They're already kind of abusing it. They're going up to pastors, to priests. As a couple, two will go up and ask for a blessing. So now, you know, that pastor, that priest may be, in, may be uh, more progressive. Maybe like, great, this is, this is my opportunity now to start sort of showing the world how we're going to be more inclusive of the same-sex couple. But the conservative pastor is going to be like, what do I do here? Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know if that that, that makes no, that's, sense. No, that helps because I've seen a few general streams of responses to this document within the Roman Catholic community, and it does seem like there are certain faithful, traditional Catholics who think that there are so, there's some good aspects to this document that um that it's a good move on the Vatican's part um and i've seen some positive comments from some catholic apologists to this effect and, and so what do they see that is good here and and praiseworthy it's it is clear that again the teaching on marriage has not changed and there's actually statements of reaffirmation of the teaching, right? It says in paragraph five, the church does not have the power to impart blessings on unions of persons of the same sex. To the paragraph right before that, the church's doctrine on this point, uh, marriage, remains firm. Uh, again, if it's during the liturgy, if it's during a mass, if it's any kind of formal context that might be called liturgical, the blessing of a same-sex person has to be separate from that context. It says the blessing should never be imparted. This is uh, paragraph 39. The blessing should never be imparted in concurrence with the ceremonies of a civil union and not even in connection with them, nor can it be performed with any clothing 
gestures or words that are proper to a wedding. The same applies when the blessing is requested by a same-sex couple. Okay, now there's been a lot of confusion because the uh, chapter three of the document is entitled Blessings of Couples in Irregular Situations and of Couples of the Same Sex. And people have read that to um, to mean or interpreted it to mean if you say couple, blessing of a couple, you're implying that uh, you're blessing also the union because what makes a couple a couple is the union. Yeah. Okay. And I look, I would say I don't think fiducia supplicans, if fiducia, again, fiducia supplicans is not changing the teaching on marriage. It's, well, what it's doing is it's attempting to enhance or enrich the meaning of blessings. The question is, how will these blessings sort of unfold in the life of the church, in the actual concrete life of the church? And how will that affect the minds of the believers as they see potentially priests offering blessings to couples who are both of the same sex and who look like they're coming up to receive a blessing as a couple. So it sounds like the good thing is that it is technically on paper a reaffirmation of the traditional view on marriage, but the confusion is that it seems like maybe it's a little ambiguous for not mentioning anything about the repentance of sin and then also the use of the phraseology same-sex couple. Like if if yeah. they had said something like if an individual who struggles with homosexuality would like a blessing as they are striving to mortify the flesh, I don't think that would have been nearly as controversial. But it it, it seems like there's some amount of confusion about blurring this line between blessing the sinner and blessing the sin. I mean, for sure. This is an issue of practice. I mean, now Cardinal Sarah, who, an African cardinal, used to be the head of the dicastery for worship. Um, he's actually attacked even making this distinction between a liturgical blessing and a spontaneous blessing. And I think what where he's coming from is, blessing's a blessing, okay? If, if you're a priest and you're blessing uh, a couple coming up to you, whether it's liturgical or spontaneous, it's the same release of authoritative clerical sort of power, if you will. Cardinal Sarah is very conservative and African, the African bishops are, are most up in arms. Of course, so many of us look to Africa these days for our spiritual guidance uh, because they seem to be one of the few parts of the world where all the church traditions there are have the greatest amount of clarity and boldness on these, especially these issues of theological anthropology. Um, so Cardinal Sarah was even attacking that, that that distinction was even made between, oh, we'll do liturgical blessings. No, but these spontaneous blessings, sure, yeah, let's do that. Now, I do want to say we we do got to understand the, pa- the pastoral heart behind this as well, because there are going to be people, Roman Catholics, who are same-sex attracted, maybe they're in, maybe they are in a marriage, and they're struggling to know what you know with the idea of like, 
we, I need to get out of this marriage. This is wrong. And maybe, maybe somebody in that position will come up to a priest and say, Father, give me the strength. Bless me so that I have the strength to do what is right. And of course, you wouldn't want to deny anybody that, that kind of blessing. But again, it's going to be, it's going to come down to almost a case by case basis because there's going to, we know, I think we just know there's going to be as many people who are going to use this for the opposite, um, out of the, out of an, a, a contrary heart to the, to the person I just, uh, that type of person I just talked to, they're going to use it as a political tool and they're going to walk up there boldly and confidently with their husband. Uh, the man's going to walk up to his husband or the, the woman with their wife and say, bless me. Right. Right. And they might do it to the conservative priest in order to put him on the hot spot, or they might do it with their liberal pastor who they know will do so smiling and then you know the cameras will go off and this is in a sense optics wise be like one step closer to practicing what we don't preach right but again if you're putting the practice first maybe the preaching fades away at some point now i'm so glad that you mentioned um you know the african response you know to that from that one bishop it makes me wonder how the document is being viewed by other ancient faith or apostolic streams such as the Eastern Rite Catholics or um, more faithful Anglicans, uh, Eastern Orthodox. I know that the Metropolitan here in the Southern California area for the uh, Coptic Church really took kind of some, made some, asked for some clarity, shall we say. I'm trying to put it graciously there, but you know, it was really saying like, we don't accept this basically. And I'm wondering, you know, how other ancient faith streams are taking this statement. They're pushing back, I think for the most part. I mean, I saw an interview with uh, the Metropolitan Alarion in uh, Rod Dreyer. I watched that interview. And, yeah. Yeah. The, I guess they were in Budapest. That's where Rod Dreyer is living now. Um, he was, I don't know if he's the archbishop, or the Metropolitan in Budapest, he was a Russian Orthodox, uh-huh. and he made some very good points. And I think um, that that this was going to actually affect ecumenicism between uh, the Russian, at least the Russian Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And then, with regards to the African Catholic uh, bishops, uh, this is you know this 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 whole debate is being paralleled almost exactly in the Church of England. Yeah. And I had I had Ian Paul on my pa- podcast a couple months ago, who is an Anglican uh, priest and an excellent New Testament scholar. We talked about this in detail uh, because the Church of England has this um, this thing that they're calling the prayer of faith and love, where they're yeah. trying to do a similar kind of move. They're trying to sort of bless the persons in the union without affirming the union. And it's getting to what I like Ian's term for it. I'll steal for it. It's called salami slicing. You know, you keep trying to get as close as possible without changing the teaching, but you're doing things again that are almost like priming people for the teaching to be changed at some point. You know, you're trying to compromise. And, 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 I, and I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is hard because at the end of the day, the pastor, priest, minister is confronted by a concrete human person with genuine human needs, desires, struggles with sin, so on and so forth. Um, but the the more, if you want to call them ancient traditions, 
Um, I, I I think Protestantism is actually quite an ancient tradition. I think it's probably the most ancient tradition. But um, you know, uh, but these um, non-Western churches, right, are I think the ones reacting most starkly against things like fiducia supplicants. You know, and I reference again Cardinal Sarah. Here, I'll just quote him. He's from the Catholic Herald, uh, January 9th, 2024. He says, We do not enter a discussion with the declaration, Fiducia Supplicans, nor with its various uses that we have seen multiply. We simply respond with the word of God and with the magisterium and the traditional teaching of the church, end quote. Now, you, you, you talked earlier about Catholic polity, and one thing we got to bring up is a lot of people are confused about Hey, what's the authoritative status of something like fiducia supplicans? Right? You mentioned her. I mean, a lot of Catholics will like. I don't know. Is it an infallible proclamation of the Church? Is it dogma? Any for the Catholic ecclesiology is a little bit difficult to understand, even for most Catholics, right? Um, and so there is this question about how authoritative is the document itself, and on that. Uh, issue. I even to my to my conservative brothers and sisters in Christ in the Roman Catholic Church, I'd say this is an authoritative document. I mean, you got to take this seriously. Now, there there are different views in the Catholic Church on how affa- infallibility applies to the magisterium. Okay, but if you read paragraph three of this document, and I quote: "Such theological reflection based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis." implies a real development from what has been said about blessings in the magisterium and the official texts of the church. This explains why this text has taken on the typology of a declaration, end quote. A declaration is a declaration to the entire Roman Catholic world that this is Pope Francis's vision and a real development. And that word development in Catholic theology is very important. It's a development of all prior teachings on blessings that the magisterium has hitherto given out. You might argue whether it's infallible or not, because there are different views of how infallibility right. applies to the magisterium, but you have to take this as a declaration of your Pope, who is your senior pastor, in accordance with his Roman Curie, which is like the presidential cabinet. Okay, so it's authoritative, and it needs to be taken as such even if there's going to be debate over it. So it really puts the local parish priest in kind of a tricky position because of the lack of clarity. Do I just delay doing these blessings? What do I do when somebody shows up and wants the blessing? How authoritative is this? Could it get me in trouble with my bishop? What if my bishop is more progressive leaning? Right. Um, it it really puts that local parish priest in a difficult situation situation, but it also puts, I think, the traditional Catholic in the pew also in a bit of a difficult position of, well, where is my, we'll call him senior pastor leading us? Where where are we going? If this is a development, it seems like doctrinally, where are we headed as a church? That could put that person in a little bit of an uncomfortable place. It did, and there was an immediate response because of that. And then Cardinal Fernandez, I should we should say Cardinal Fernandez, who is the head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, used to be called the CDF Congregation for the Doctor 
uh, um, for the doctrine of the faith, which was once headed up by Cardinal Ratzinger uh, under John Paul II's papers. And Cardinal Ratzinger was the former pope before and Pope Cardinal Francis. Cardinal Ratzinger was Benedict the 16th yes. died last year. Um, so Cardinal Fernandez then had to issue a response to these concerns. Like, you're putting us in a very difficult position because we, as faithful Catholics, priests, bishops, the entire clergy, we got to take this as authoritative. You're saying it's a declaration. And then Cardinal uh, Fernandez issued a response. I forget when the response was issued. I got it in my notes here somewhere. Um, saying um, that, well, everybody has to make prudential decisions based on the context of their local culture. Okay, so that sounds kind of weird. Now, Father Raymond D'Souza in a resp- says about what Fernandez's response, he basically called the whole document dead on arrival. Because now what he's saying is like, well, look, we, this is authoritative and everything, but but you have to, you got to do what you think is best given the context you're in. So, okay, so we're back to basically any priest, bishop, whatever, doing what what they think is right given the context. So it's kind of walking the dog back. The problem that D'Souza and others have pointed out is that the response of Cardinal Fernandez was not a declaration like this, okay, which is on, okay, it was, so that the response, uh, the clarification that Cardinal Fernandez gave out is not authoritative, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. You're going to need another declaration. So you see how this is going to go on and on. Yeah. And the other declaration to overturn or even further clarify the one that you issued on December 18th. Because the response alone does not is not authoritative. It's just if Pope Francis writes a letter to a friend or has a phone call with a friend on his cell phone and says something, that's in personal course personal correspondences of the Pope are not authoritative. Right. Private letters, so on and so forth. There's there's grades of authority in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and this this is an authoritative statement, but but Cardinal Fernandez's uh, response to concerns where he talks about, well, just do whatever given the context you're in, that's not a declaration. That was just a, a, a personal response. Right. So that, that would have to be raised to the level of declaration. But as Father D'Souza points out, it's almost just saying, okay, everybody, do, okay, we, we, we kind of were... Maybe went too far. Just do whatever you think's right. So why even make a declaration like that? It brings me back to what we said at the beginning of you know this form of ecumenism, and you know what are the things that Christians have historically believed about particular issues: the incarnation, the Trinity. I'm going to say the definition of marriage or the sin of homosexuality. Um, What we're seeing now is that every tradition is struggling with the issue of marriage, defining marriage, the sin of homosexuality, the pastoral concerns, the theology. This is not a problem that's just about Andy Stanley or just about the Vatican or just about um, the Church of England. 
we are seeing this blueprint, if you will, and dividing line across denominations. The PCA has been going through its own process. Um, you know, there's different streams of Lutheranism and um, all of that. They're, every every tradition is struggling with this. And I, you know, my Eastern Orthodox friends are a little bit in denial about it sometimes. You know, yeah. that they're, they're they're pure, but but they have progressives too. Yeah, that that Metropolitan Ilarium spoke about the the Greek Metropolitan. Look, some people might be tempted. Where can I run? You know, yeah. either idea where that, that's run? where I want to go is where do I run? That's going to be people's question. Recently, re, you know, in, in the last maybe 20 or 30 years for uh, the evangelical Protestant who um, saw too many churches capitulating to theological liberalism or progressivism, it was like run to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church never changes. Blah, blah. I mean, we know that it does. Um, but that that was sort of the hideout, especially under people like Pope John Paul II or Benedict the Sixteenth, right? We were always, even even though we would want to contest in a biblically and evidentially over Roman Catholic dogmas like those surrounding Mary and justification, so on and so forth, the conservative Protestant always felt more comfortable with somebody like Pope John Paul II or Cardinal Ratzinger in his pope because we could at least argue then over what we think the universal, the fixed and universal nature of the Bible is. Okay, not whether there is a fixed and universal, there are fixed and universal moral values and duties, but what are they? But with the progressives in Protestantism now in the Roman Catholic Church, and there are many, and he, in a, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox, and I think people are thinking, well, if we can't go to the Roman Catholic Church, let's just go further east, you know, and maybe we can find safe haven in the Eastern Orthodox churches, but even there, maybe not so. Um, if there's not a fixed and universal moral content, because the progressives say there just isn't a fixed and universal moral content, we're arguing over with our conservative brothers and sisters, what is the fixed and universal moral content? But we all believe there is one. But with the progressives who are historicists, they're, you know, they're great, 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 great grandchildren of Hegel. We're progressing. So there are no fixed eternal universe. There is no fixed universal and eternal moral content to be mined from the Bible. It's flexible. It's malleable. It's changeable. It's culture that will ultimately determine our doctrine or which doctrines we can have and which ones we should get rid of, not the other way around, the Bible determining what the culture should do. Okay, and and to highlight this, let me let me quote a, a liberal Catholic who was praising fiducia supplicans. But of course, a lot of liberal Catholics, and this is something Ian Paul pointed out with regards to the prayers of faith, love and faith that the Anglican Church is trying to instill. A, at the end of the day, nobody really wants this document, neither the conservative nor the liberal, because for the liberal or progressive Christian, it's not far enough. It's not really what we want is just some blessings. We want the full affirmation of marriage for same-sex uh, couples, right? So this is, if anything, it's just sort of a small stepping stone for the liberal 
or progressive. And for the conservative, it's a matter of concern. Okay. But here's Michael Sean Winters uh, from the National Catholic Register, a uh, liberal Catholic, I believe. He says, quote, and this is important. The shift Francis intends is at once less exact and more profound than a doctrinal shift. What Francis has been trying to achieve for many years is to relocate the place of doctrine within the magisterium of the church, specifically to insist that doctrine serves the good of the souls, not the other way round. Instead of seeing the Pope's responsibility as confined to the articulation of clearly thought out statements about what the church does and does not believe, Francis wants to, the teaching offices to prioritize its own pastoral application above doctrinal clarity. How will this affect people? Question mark. Francis asks before he puts pen to paper. End quote. Now, and then Winters goes on. This is what I talked about at the beginning. Uh, doctrinal clarity. Eh, that's not so, that's not important. What really matters is how the church affects the life of people. And when I see this, my concern is this. People who are worried about, I mean, one of the major concerns that is obviously driving these, the, you know, getting these very flimsy um, statements about doctrine and this, this strong emphasis on pastoral care is the churches are emptying, right? I mean, it's true. The Roman Catholic Church especially, it's losing, it's losing people. Numbers are down. So what are we going to do? right? Maybe we can soften some things up to try and attract or bring back in the next generation, right? I mean, that's just, that's a simple human motivator. The pews are empty. What can we do? All right. Well, maybe it's a pastoral care and counseling issue. Maybe we can kind of, again, slice the salami in such a way where more people will be attracted and come back into our churches. But my concern is with people who think that way, is I wonder about what their metaphysical and theological commitments really are, whether they really believe that Christianity is true, or do they just think that religion is something like a psychological and social benefit, right? It's a benefit. It's good to have religion in the world because it provides certain kind of imminent goods and benefits for society and for individual people, right? It's not that we really believe that God exists, Jesus is Lord, Jesus rose from the dead, he was born of, you know, he was born of emergence, suffered, died, buried, and rose on behalf of us and our sins. But we need religion because it's a huge component of society. It's been around since the beginning. We're all homo religiosus in the end. And it does provide a sort of psychological and social safety net. So I, I wonder if they're not a lot of people in all of our traditions who don't really believe the metaphysics. They want to retain some of the morality for sure because it's good for society, but can't we slice off some of the morality, some of the moral injunctions from the Bible that yeah, we feel could just kind of don't fit anymore with where we're at historically? But I think the Lutherans and other traditions, the PCUSA, they're, they're way out in front of that and it hasn't worked their numbers are still falling and right, it, right. they have gone all the way down the progressive road to being fully affirming, fully embracing 
drag queens in Lutheran churches, right? All the whole nine yards, and it's not working. I mean, I I'm a skeptic. You know that that they could just look at the you know what other traditions are doing. I don't think this is going to work. But so we're going to blow up the Vatican because of of that. I don't know. Just from a strategy standpoint, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I mean it, that's right because those the numbers in those highly progressive churches, the Episcopalian church. I mean, it's not like they've they've increased. So you'd think you would see the writing on the wall. Yeah, and we pre- preach the truth. And you know what? Who cares? about numbers who care i mean who care let me let god bring bring uh you know it's it's god who's bringing the sheep into the fold the other point i wanted to make that's along this lines though is about 120 years ago you know where was where were all the traditions with the creeds 120 years ago you basically were living in a western society that was dominated by the natural sciences up until really the 1950s Right. And 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 the big issues we were wrestling with as a church a hundred or so years ago were, were the challenges that the natural sciences were hoisting upon us. Can there really be miracles? You know, well, does God really exist? Can there really be miracles? So on and so forth. And we saw where the progressive churches caved there and they gave up on all of the metaphysical commitments that are necessary to Christianity. And they basically turned tried to turn Christianity into a social gospel. It's just about living good in the world and doing good stuff, okay? Well, uh, the West Western cultures shifted, right? Western society has shifted. It's no longer really the natural sciences that have what I would call epistemic hegemony. It's the social sciences. So the questions now are, are you can get progressive churches now, liberal churches, that affirm the creeds. Oh, yeah, we believe in God. We believe in the incarnation. We have no problem with the virgin birth. We think miracles happen. But when it gets to what is man, you know, theological anthropology, you know, what are we, what are human beings? Well, then we're going to turn to the social sciences. Right. We're going to turn to the critical theorists, and we're going to turn to Foucault and and all of these, you know, 1930s 40s 50s 60s you know atheist social scientists and we're going to try and catch up with them and we're going to take them as our primary source of authority and the so where the conservative churches had to hold fast against the natural sciences a hundred years ago now we got to hold fast against the social sciences because the progressives will just say well the social sciences will tell us who we are and what we are and it, the social, the now we knowism of the social sciences that gender's fluid, it's natural to be homo, have homosexual inclinations and desires, yada, yada, yada. And that's where then you also wonder to what degree the Vatican, the Roman Curia, and the Pope himself have been influenced by the secular social sciences. Yeah, those are great points. And I just want to say thank you, Anthony, for coming on and kind of walking us through all of this. You've given us a really nice little roadmap for understanding um, what's happening, both in Roman Catholicism, but also more broadly in the church and, and thinking through these important issues. I do feel like it's important for Protestants to understand the impact that the Vatican 
has on social policies and that on many issues, we can link arms with our traditional Roman Catholic friends over pro-life issues, over traditional marriage and that sort of thing. And so when the it starts to look like things are a little shaky, that does have an impact on us as Protestants. We can't just live in a little silo and think, this doesn't pertain to me because I'm not a Roman Catholic. Um, no, for better or for worse, those of us who are are trying to maintain a level of um, connection of the historic Christian faith to what Christians have historically believed, you know, where we will find brothers and sisters among conservative Roman Catholics, and, and we have to be thoughtful about that. I know it's an unpopular view. Some people may come for me, but that's kind of where I stand on the issue. So, yeah, uh, no, I know I know too many, too many Roman Catholics who love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength uh, to say that uh, because they also, I think, have some false beliefs about Mary or, or, um, or the Pope. Um, that they're going to be excluded from the community, the communion of saints in the eschatological future. Um, you know, and I just want to mention one thing before we, uh, before we leave, um, one of, one of my brothers in Christ at Echeveria has written now an updated version of his, um, I think he wrote a 2016 book called Pope Francis and the Legacy of Vatican II. I would definitely, um, recommend, uh, that book by Ed Echeveria, who is a conservative, uh, faithful Roman Catholic, but also um, somebody who loves uh, Protestants, who's steeped in Reformed theology as well. And I think that book is now out, but that would probably also be a good resource for people who want to understand more about uh, contemporary Roman Catholic Catholicism and uh, Francis's uh, papacy. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Good All right. Well, friends, I hope you found this helpful. And if you would like to know more about um, kind of some previous conversations I've done on Catholicism, make sure to go to my YouTube channel and look for that playlist. Uh, you can look for the previous conversation I had with Anthony a few years ago and also the two discussions I did last year on Roman Catholicism and kind of helping us think through this ecumenical approach to Roman Catholics and our, and our, quite frankly, our complicated relationship with them at times. So I want to continue to resource you and help you think about these issues. And I realize that talking about the Pope and talking about all of these issues can be difficult for some people. And some of you may have found this discussion uh, a little challenging, but I want to commend you if you stayed all the way to the end. And I would invite you to write to me. Let me know what you thought about the discussion, what further questions you have. Sometimes that helps me with thinking through and programming future uh, installments of the podcast. Thank you so much for watching. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.